for the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm Lucille Sherman. This is the special 2020 elections edition of Domecast. Every week since September 7th, we've spotlighted a different North Carolina legislative or statewide race. Last week, though, we revisited a lawsuit making its way through the courts, and this week, we're going to give an overview of some of the most competitive legislative races to watch. We'll be right back after this quick break. Over the past nine weeks, we've profiled three state house races and two state senate races, which are spread out across the state. But there are a few we didn't get to that are considered some of the most competitive. We've talked about Senate District 24, which is a race between Republican Amy Gailey and J.D. Wooten. And we've talked about Senate District 31 between Republican incumbent Senator Joyce Kravick and Democrat Terry LeGrant. But there are two more important races that we haven't gotten to. The first is among the most competitive and expensive legislative races in the Senate, Senate District 1, which is currently represented by Bob Steinberg, and his Democratic opponent is Tess Judge. Here with me today is Colin Campbell, who I'm hoping can tell us a little bit about the incumbent in this race, Senator Steinberg. Colin, what's Senator Steinberg's reputation in the legislature, and what is he most known for? He's an interesting character. He gives some very fiery speeches. He's got some very sometimes controversial Facebook posts, but he was originally a, a House member, moved over to the Senate a couple of years ago. And his biggest thing he's known for is prison security issues. He had in his district this deadly prison attack where prisoners, inmates in the state correctional facilities attacked and killed a couple of corrections officers a couple of years back. And so since then, he's made his mission to get on top of the issue of making sure security and, and working conditions are better for correctional officers. So that's been his big focus. He's had led a whole legislative committee about that. And it plays well in that area of the state because there are a lot of state prisons in that corner of northeastern North Carolina and a lot of folks who work there or have family members who work there. And so I think in a lot of respects that the constituents up there like that he's tackled this particular issue that's sort of not been a, a super popular thing for state politicians. Didn't he do a statewide tour of all prisons pretty recently? Yeah, I think he just recently wrapped up, but he was trying to go to all of them. And there's like three or four dozen at least, you know, between the, the coast and the mountains. So it's a lot of traveling to do these, these prison tours, but certainly it, it's helped him out. Politically, the State Employees Association, Scenic, is a big supporter of what he's done on that issue because they feel like it's sort of a, people who have been ignored by state politics for, for quite some time. What is Steinberg known in terms of where he stands on social issues? I think he's definitely pretty far to the right on that. It's pretty easy to say. You know, if you look at his Facebook page, and I think a lot of his opponents in this race and the Democrats who are trying to unseat him have highlighted some of the sort of offensive statements he's made about recent protests against police brutality and, and things like that, where he's definitely taken sort of very pointed stances. Uh, he's been given some fiery speeches when he's he's in the Senate. My favorite memory of him is uh, actually from the last election. He had this Facebook video where he accused his opponent of being a fickle pickle. And so he waved around a cucumber in his hand as he was doing the video. So he's definitely, he's entertaining to cover, just to say the least. And I believe a couple of his statements have been flagged on Facebook, like they've been hidden on his timeline. Next up, we have Senate District 11, in which these candidates have raised a combined total of $1.7 million in the latest quarter. That's actually the lowest of all of the top four Senate races. And it's a race between Democrat Alan Wallens and Republican 
current House Rep Lisa Stone Barnes. NC Free gives Republicans a three-point advantage in this district. What do we need to know about Representative Barnes, Colin, who is currently serving in the House? So she was previously a county commissioner in Nash County, and this is her first term in the state house. So she's already, with only two years in, is looking to sort of move up into the upper chamber of the legislature. I was trying to recall what she's best known for. And as is the case with most folks who are in their first term, there's not been a whole lot of big legislation that she's, she's been involved in sort of a utility player for the Republicans on regulatory reform and some policing issues, but it's not been any, any sort of major things. Her opponent in this race is Alan Wellens, who's a former state senator and Democrat, but he's been out of office for well over a decade, but still pretty well-known community leader in the, the Johnston County area. So it's sort of the way this district is structured. You've got Barnes, who's very well-known in Nash County from years of elected service there, and then Wellens, who's better known in Johnston County, but Johnston County actually tends to lean a little bit more to the right than Nash County does. So it'll be fascinating to see what the outcome is there. Yeah, that's a race I'm going to keep a close eye on. I'm also wondering what other races you're keeping an eye on this cycle in terms of, you know, state legislative races? There's a couple of categories of ones that I think could be the, have sort of a pivotal role in, in determining control of the legislature. A tour in the mountains, one is Representative Ray Russell and a guy named Ray Pickett. So it's the Battle of the Rays. Uh, Ray Russell is a Democrat. He's a pretty popular uh, weather blog up in the Boone area. He unseated a Republican two years ago when the Democrats had their first blue wave. Republicans would like to get that seat back. So you see all these ads going around up there, each of them calling each other the wrong Ray, that they are the right Ray. And so you get some quirky advertising around that. Further west than that, there's a pretty heated house race in the Waynesville area between current rep Joe Sam Queen, who's a Democrat and known square dance caller in that area, and Mike Clampett, who is who he defeated two years ago. But the two of them have had, I think this is the fifth rematch between them. They they are the two candidates on the ballot in this House district every time. And Queen seems to win more often than Clampett does, but it's always colorful. I've seen some ads floating around calling Queen a slumlord based on some rental properties he owns. That one's pretty quirky. And speaking of rematches, you've got several others on the Senate side. In the Fayetteville area where Democrat incumbent Kirk Devier is seeking a second term, the person he defeated two years ago, Wesley Meredith, is running again as a Republican, trying to get his seat back. Same deal down in Wilmington. Democratic Senator Harper Peterson wants another term, but the person he defeated, Michael Lee, two years ago as a Republican, is also running again. So that's another one where there's this sort of back and forth, depending on which party is up and which party is down, as to who wins. And, and the same people seem to want to run every time. Yeah. To add on to that, I've profiled this race in this podcast in the last nine weeks, but House District 9 is one I'm really interested in. I know one Republican operative said to me that if Representative Perrin Jones loses, the House will not be read in the coming session. So I think that's really interesting. But what races can Democrats not afford to lose? A few come to mind, but I'm wondering sort of what your take on this is. You know, I was thinking about that, and it's really, almost have to say all of them. The map is just not all that positive for Democrats. So if you're looking specifically at the races that we think are competitive that we've been talking about on this podcast, all the ones that are currently in Republican hands, like the orange seat we talked about, the Senator Joyce Kravik seat up in the triad that we've talked about before in this podcast, they have to kind of hit all or nearly all of them to get the seats they need to take the majority. At the same time, they're also keeping the seats they won from Republicans two years ago that I was just talking about. So it's a, it's kind of a, a tough offensive game for, for the Democrats because they really do have to hit all of these. And of course, there's some 
quirky ones that we don't think are that competitive. And there's always sort of the surprise upset. So they might be able to get one or two of those and then they don't need the the ones that we've been watching that are most expensive. But that seems a little bit unlikely. Yeah, since Democrats have to pick up five seats in the Senate and six seats in the House, they really, if they lose any, then they'll have to pick up even more. And it seems like both parties have really strictly targeted a handful of races. Those four top Senate races are getting so much funding in. So I don't know what would happen if Democrats lost any of their seats at all. It would probably really screw their chances to take the majority at all. One of the seats Will and I talked about way back when was House District 37, which is Sydney Batch's district, and she's running against Republican Aaron Paré. And then another one that's sort of a classic Democratic hold, I think, is Jeff Jackson's seat in Charlotte. Yeah, he had Army National Guard training, I think it was. when So his wife is sort of running the campaign and putting out all of his campaign videos for the final week. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious. Those are two that I don't know about you, but those are two that I think about when I think of Democratic strongholds. Oh, yeah. And those are Republicans last stand in Wake and Mecklenburg counties, the two largest counties in the state. If they lose and Republicans don't pull off an upset in some other district, there will be no Republican lawmakers from those two counties. Yeah. What other Republican lawmakers are sort of the last standing? Of course, we think of Senate Majority Leader Phil Berger and... House Speaker Tim Moore as the big Republicans that have really run the place in the last decade or so. But are there any other Republicans that are sort of hanging on that have been here while the Republican majority has been in control? You know, there, there are others, and a lot of them weren't even running for re-election this year, like Senate Majority Leader Harry Brown sort of voluntarily decided this is the time to step down. I guess the other key figures, State Senator Ralph Heiss from up in Mitchell County is sort of Burgers number two in the Senate. He's got a pretty safe district, so odds are he'll be around regardless of, of what happens across the ballot on Tuesday. And in the House, again, with, with there, there's probably only a few that are still around for a long period of time. Julia Howard in Davie County comes to mind on the Republican side. She's been in office for you know well over a decade, maybe two decades. And again, a, a safe seat where she's probably going to be around one way or the other. Although it will be interesting to see with the leadership, you know, when the power shifted a decade ago, the top leaders sort of headed for the hills on the Democratic side pretty quickly. And so it would be interesting to see if, if Phil Berger or Tim Moore stuck around as minority leaders or if they just decided to go you know, resign from office and do something else entirely. Yeah. So this leads right into my next question, which is the last decade of Republican control in the legislature. I wrote a piece about this a couple of days ago, and it really focused on the big issues Republicans really targeted in the last decade. And this is my new favorite topic since I've spent the last few weeks researching it. But since you've been covering the state legislature since 2014, which was shortly after the Republicans took the supermajority, I'm wondering if there are any issues that stick out in your mind from that first year in particular. You know, when, when I first started covering the legislature, it felt like there was much more of a place for social issues. There was always a gun rights bill that got a ton of press and a ton of controversy. There was always an abortion uh, restrictions bill that got a ton of press. And of course, 2015, 2016 was the era of House Bill 2, the transgender bathroom legislation that seemed to take up so much of the oxygen. And it's been sort of interesting to see the social pressures. And some of this has been the lack of the supermajority, but I think also just sort of the change in priorities for the Republican majority is that we haven't seen as much of that in the last couple cycles. The last couple of years have been more about sort of conservative 
fiscal policy, budget issues, healthcare issues, things that are a little bit less of a hot button than LGBT type issues and abortion and guns. But certainly early on, that was what they were pushing for because they'd been so many years in the wilderness where they really you know, couldn't get a bill passed on any of these topics. And suddenly they had the power to just ram it straight through. And that's what they were doing those first couple of years I was covering it. So if Democrats manage to flip both chambers, which some people I've talked to, I think it's a total toss up what will happen. I don't know about you, but some people I've talked to think it's either going to be Democrats take both chambers or none. And I'm not sure how accurate that is, but... Yeah, I've heard a few that think that Democrats have a better chance of taking the House than the Senate. So there's a scenario where the Democrats have the House and then the Senate stays Republican. Yeah, I will say my editor asked me this question literally hours ago. And I really think the take changes depending on the person I talk to and depending on the day. Because I've heard some people say they think Democrats are more likely to flip the Senate. So (laughs) it really just depends. But if Democrats did take control over both chambers, what do you think some of the first policies they would attempt to push through would be? I think what we've, we've been hearing is the rhetoric from them is that Medicaid expansion would be like the thing they do on day one. The legislation is ready to go. That's something they might just try to ram through quickly because it's been such a huge priority for Governor Roy Cooper and the Democrats for the last couple of years. And they have not been able to get it passed because the Republicans, particularly in the Senate, are, are opposed to it. Other things I think we'd see... There's already rumblings of a a statewide non-discrimination law, sort of the antithesis of of House Bill 2, in a sense, that that could be percolating up as as something they might do. I think you could see some of the corporate tax cuts reversed or at least sort of stalled out or something. I don't think they would necessarily want to undo any of the personal income tax cuts, because that would be more of a political hot potato, but certainly sort of the breaks for for big business. I could see some of that going away if if Democrats uh, suddenly are able to enact all of their wish lists overnight. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see what they would get done. I wrote about this in the story I wrote a couple of days ago, but Republicans had a lofty 10-point agenda when they first took office in 2010, and they knocked out almost everything on that list. And I'm sure Democrats will attempt to do the same after being out of power for the last 10 years. Something I think about a lot that's really been a hot topic in these races is education and each side having a narrative about what the other side has done to her education. What do you think Democrats would do if they took control of the legislature when it comes to education? I think you'd see more funding put onto the the public school side of the equation. I think the the biggest hot potato for partisan education politics has been the private school voucher opportunity scholarship program, something the governor has already sort of sought to cut back on the level of funding that's there for that. I think you could see that diverted to bigger teacher raises, other sort of classroom funding that Democrats feel like they haven't been able to get through the last few years. But definitely sort of restructuring more towards public schools than than towards private and charter schools. Yeah, so we've talked about the possible undoing of sort of what the Republican majority legislature has done with charter schools and opportunity scholarship funding and tax cuts. But is there anything else you think Democrats might try to quickly undo in their early days if they take control of the legislature? You know, there's probably a a number of the the gun and abortion things that I've talked about that haven't gotten as much attention since they passed, but I think could sort of be brought back up to, to repeal There's also the Democrats have over the years have put forth a number of sort of good governance proposals about increasing transparency in the legislature, moving towards some redistricting reform. So it'll be fascinating to see if they actually 
push those bills through if they take power, because those are usually the sort of bills you always see from the party that's out of power. And then when they get get uh, into the majority, suddenly it, it seems less like a good idea than it did when they were being sort of stymied by all of the current setup of structure of power at Jones Street. Yeah, according to my research of the last decade, Republicans did the same thing. When they came in in 2010, they promised reforms on, you know, transparency when it came to the budgeting process. I think they had some corruption bills in mind with some Democratic scandals that had happened in the lead up to them taking control. And I don't, some of them happened, but I don't think all of them did because sort of other things that they really wanted to get done took precedent. So I will be actually interested to see if Democrats also follow through <laughs> on those things. Yeah. And, you know, some of it ends up being time sensitive. You know, there may be federal coronavirus funding to deal with come January, regardless of which party's in power. And it's kind of a, a corollary to, to what happened in 2010 was we were in the middle of a recession. So there was a lot of budget cut type stuff that they felt like they had to do to make ends meet. And, you know, 2021 may be a similar deal with the economic recession we're seeing related to COVID-19. Something that I've been really motivated to do on this podcast is help people understand why the state legislature and who you vote for on the state legislative level is, affects your daily life more than, you know, voting for the president. And is there anything you think voters need to know sort of across the board about these state legislative races or anything they should be thinking about whether or not they've already cast their ballot? You know, it's a lot of the issues that, that have come up in, in our conversation. It's, you know, the, the health care factor, the issues around, you know, public school funding. Like you say, it all really affects the day to day down to even, you know, the, the local legislation. There's always some bills that, expect, you know, are, are something that a particular county or a particular city wants that they have to get through the legislature. And in order to do that, you need somebody who is your representative who wants to make that happen and has the political manpower or woman power to, to get it done in the state legislature. So it really does affect every little thing right down to, you know, the times I've seen the legislature take over a teeny tiny town where the water and sewer capabilities were an issue where they were, they were out of money to run, uh, you know, essentially make sure you flush your toilet, it actually goes somewhere. That's where the legislature had to step in and, and fix things for places that are really struggling to provide like basic needs that people have. And that's something I think a lot of times you don't necessarily think about when you're going to vote and your mind is fixated on all the presidential rhetoric that you hear in the news. Yeah. And quick plug for you, Colin, since you came from local government reporting to state government reporting, I think those are the issues that you're best at covering. They're always in the insider or on your Twitter feed. So if people have questions about the state legislative issues that appear Usually, Colin is covering them <laughs> or talking about. Yeah, them. I, I like to get down into the into the sewers in a sense of you know the really like granular stuff that comes out of the the big lofty debates that we typically cover when we cover a legislative session. Yes, we are grateful to have someone like you on our team. Well, is there anything else you think I need to know, or anyone else needs to know about these legislative races? You know, I think the, the interesting aspect of this is you're going to hear no matter who wins that redistricting played a lot into it. We've had several cycles with court order and redistricting to sort of make some minor changes to the map. So it'll be interesting to see what impact that has, if any, on how many seats are competitive and able to flip now. But one of the challenges for Democrats is just the way we redistrict ourselves and the way we live in the state is that a lot of districts pack in the Democrats. The urban areas are sometimes 70 or 80 percent you know, vote Democratic, and that dilutes the power of Democrats through the rest of the state. So you could have a year where 
52% of voters in legislative races pick a Democratic candidate, but that may not be enough to actually have Democratic control of the legislature, just the way the lines are drawn. So that's something to, to keep in mind as you're watching the results come in on election night. That's a really good reminder. Well, thanks so much for talking with me on this final episode, Colin. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We'll be right back after this quick break. It's Monday, November 2nd. Tomorrow is the general election. As of Sunday, more than 4.5 million North Carolinians have cast their ballots. If you're wondering how much state legislative candidates have raised, what presidential candidate circuits have visited this swing state in the final push, or what's going to happen at the polls on election day, check out newsobserver.com, where we'll have a team of journalists telling you everything you need to know. If you're casting your ballot Tuesday, don't forget to check out the News and Observer's Voter Guide. Happy election week. Mm -hmm. 